Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number four of The Nature of Middle-Earth as we continue our slow and deliberate math processing way through the nature of Middle-Earth, uh, uh, watching and, and, and seeing what Tolkien is doing here. Uh, really exciting stuff today. Today, we are going to, I hope, we are going to get to the places where Tolkien actually begins uh, rewriting the Silmarillion, or at least planning the rewriting of the Silmarillion, right? Going back to the story from the beginning and working out what it really must be like, right? If you actually think thing, think things through carefully. Um, um, so that is... Um, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Uh, and we will see some, I think, kind of interesting consequences uh, of his thinking through stuff. But first, some quick announcements. The first thing I wanted to announce is that we, we had an awesome time at Middle Moot. For those of you who have been able to attend our moots in person, it's been wonderful, as always, to be able to get together with folks and hang out and have dinner afterwards and everything. What a wonderful time uh, to get together and kind of build our community and share together. But as many of you can attest, those who can't be there physically. And I know there are many people for one reason or another, uh, such as, for instance, being on a different continent, um, have a hard time getting to our regional moots. And so therefore, all of our regional moots are available as fully hybrid experiences this year. And I've been really happy uh, with our hybrid uh, regional moots so far. I thought that the last one, especially middle moot, um, went really, really well uh, and very seamlessly. So we're kind of figuring it out, how to do this whole hybrid uh, moot thing, and uh, I've been really pleased with that. So I am very much looking forward to our next one, which is next month. So in November, on the 6th of, Saturday 6th of November, in Berkeley, California, we will be doing Baymoot the theme of which is sacrifice. Uh, so our uh, call for presentations, our call for proposals is open. Uh, if you go to signumuniversity.org slash events, you can see both our call for presentations and our registration uh, button so that you can register to join us either physically or digitally at Baymoot next month in just a few weeks. So that is uh, one of the things that's happening on our calendar, but something even closer on our calendar is the end of our fundraising campaign. This is the last week of our fundraising campaign, which reminds me, as I have at the beginning of the last two weeks, I'm going to do our prize drawing. Uh, our prize drawing for uh, uh, some. So let me actually before I do the drawing, let me let me let me show you the thing. Um, so this is our uh, web page. This is our annual fund page, signumuniversity.org/fund, and uh, it gives you some information on our fall fundraising fall fundraising campaign. Um, uh, these are the five separate programs that we are uh, operating. Well, four of which we are operating, one of which we are launching very soon. Our space program, uh, which is our newest thing, which I am super excited about. Um, right under this uh, set of tiles, however, you will see some details have been added for the annual webathon. Uh, we have the schedule here, so you can see that is this coming Saturday on the 16th. It is the culmination of our fall fundraising campaign, and for years now, oh goodness, this is probably the ninth uh, annual. 
Webathon that we have done at the end of the fundraising campaign. We'll be raising money that day and finishing up the fall fundraising campaign. Um, and there's going to be a whole bunch of special things that are going to be happening that year. A lot of uh, highly varied learning activities. So first, it's going to be starting off with my State of the University address, uh, where uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, that's going to be the debut of our space program. I'm going to explain all about the space program, what it is, why we're doing it, why have we added this other program uh, after all, um, how it's going to work, and and um, all. Well, I won't be able to explain all of the many reasons why it's going to be awesome, uh, but uh, I will do my best uh, to do a few. Um, so. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, that's going to be the, the highlight of the uh, State of the University address this year as I'm going to be explaining and, and opening up. Uh, we're going to be opening uh, space up for enrollment. Uh, we'll be starting our first uh, space modules in December uh, of this year, and we will open registration for those uh, on Saturday uh, in my State of the University address. So that's the first thing. Then for the rest of the day, over the course of the rest of the day, we're going to do five separate little space capsules, little mini sessions, um, which we're going to, to kind of give you a taste for what the space program is going to be about. Um, and so you'll see the topics that we're going to be covering in these different sessions are going to be, uh, there's going to be a creative writing session. There's going to be a session on Japanese anime. There's going to be a session on fairy tales, a session on uh, deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics and a session on English sonnets. Uh, so uh, a highly varied set of um, uh, uh, set of um, uh, opportunities uh, for fun learning there. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's um, uh, that is. That is what we're going to be doing in the middle of it. We're going to have a fun experiment. Uh, so I'm doing a Reddit AMA on Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern time uh, on, on uh, the Tolkien fans uh, subreddit. Uh, it's just r slash Tolkien fans. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, uh, what I'm going to do, so this is, I'm going to do a, a fan meta interaction experience. I'm going to be responding to the Reddit Ask Me Anything. Um, so I'm going to be answering people's questions, whatever questions they ask on Reddit, but I'm going to stream it. Uh, I'm going to stream me doing it. So I'll like discuss with everybody who's in live attendance the like answers that I'm, <laughs> that I'm considering and that I'm giving. So you guys can be like totally backstage uh, on the AMA thing. Uh, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We will see. This will be a very interesting test of my multitasking skills. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I think it, I, I think it's going to be fun. Um, and then uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're going to do first another trivia contest, which is traditional on the webathon. And then I'm going to end the day uh, with a little Lotro mini marathon. I'll probably spend something like uh, four hours or something uh, doing another Lotro marathon, uh, finishing up uh, my run through the Mordor content. Uh, and who knows, maybe even starting another really significant storyline. So um, anyway, so that's what I'm going to be doing uh, at the end of the webathon. So lots of stuff going on. It's going to be a a lot of learning, a lot of fun. I hope that you will join us for our webathon sometime. It starts at 1 uh, and uh, will end probably about 1 p.m. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, sorry. I'm laughing because uh, I'm remembering a comment. Uh, well, uh, a, a relayed conversation from uh, one of our Signum folks uh, and his spouse where uh, you know he was saying, yeah, we're doing the webathon all day on Saturday. Uh, and then <laughs> 
his wife says, when does it start? Uh, and he says, 1 p.m. And she pauses and says, I thought you said it was all day. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, well, all, all of Corey's day. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, 1 p.m. Uh, that counts as an early start for me. So there we are. Um, oh, yes. Uh, did I say ending at 1 p.m.? No, we're ending at 1 a.m., beginning at 1 p.m., ending at 1 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, so, uh, yes. And Cecilia, absolutely. There will be opportunities for comments from the peanut gallery during the, uh, uh, my, uh, AMA and stuff. That's exactly, uh, that's exactly it. So, um, anyway, so that is coming up and this button, this register here button here on the fun page is to register for the zoom session to be involved in the, uh, uh, in the webathon all, all day long. So we'll be doing different things and stuff and kind of shifting things around a little bit. Um, but, um, but anyway, yes. No, I'm not a vampire. I'm just nocturnal. There are many things that are nocturnal that are not vampires. Vampires are actually in the distinct minority of nocturnal creatures. Uh, so there we are. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, so all of uh, uh, that's what's that's what's happening here. We have been doing so well with our annual fund. You may remember that when I announced the beginning of our fundraising campaign three weeks ago, um, I said that our goal for this year was a never before glimpsed goal of $100,000. We have never raised six figures in one year. Um, last year was the best fundraising year we ever had, and we raised about $89,000 last year. Um, so my goal this year was to see if we could increase that to $100,000, which will uh, just be such a blessing uh, for Signum and the, the wonderful staff that we're trying to build. Um, and um, you guys have been responding so wonderfully to that challenge. We are already at $73,000 in gifts and pledges. We're like way ahead of where we were last year. In fact, we've already raised more. So our fiscal year starts on August 1st, right? So between August 1st uh, and now, um, you know, here in the in the you know second week of October, we've already raised more in gifts and pledges uh, than um, than we did like in the entire year two years ago, um, and we're well ahead of where we were last year. I think we're 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 if we keep going the way that we've been, I think we're going to hit that hundred thousand dollar goal. It's extremely exciting. So um, uh, yes. Oh, and. Um, and yes, Jocelyn, uh, the webathon will be recorded uh, for later watching, so you should be able to uh, uh, to see those segments on YouTube afterwards. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so le now let me do uh, my drawing. As you guys know, I've been doing a prize drawing um, for uh, from one of the people who makes a donation over the course of the week. Uh, we'll receive uh, a basically a free ticket to one of our uh, one of our four uh, tuition bearing programs here of course I can't give away free stuff for the Mythgard Institute because it's all free anyway but you can get uh, a an anytime audit registration uh, from for one of our uh, courses drawn from our graduate program you can get a free month of signum path uh, a free signum path course which is a one month course you can get a free month of signum clubs signum Academy clubs registration or you can get one of our new space modules um uh so i'm going to i'm gonna i'm gonna roll my roll my dice here uh and we'll see who is this week's winner oops not on that roll hang on i need another roll okay this one will work let me see where did i put my list as usual i have too many windows open okay there's my list 
All right, and the winner is Kimberly Kunker. Kimberly Kunker is the winner. Congratulations, Kimberly. Uh, so, Kimberly, you should um, send an email to info at signumu.org, and we will uh, discuss with you uh, getting you your prize. Congratulations. We're going to be doing some more drawings of this kind. Um, on uh, at the webathon uh, this coming weekend, so uh, you can join us for that. For more such things, we'll probably be giving away some uh, uh, specifically focusing on giving away some more uh, uh, some more space modules and such. Um, so, uh, uh, as I say, that's going to be our sort of primary feature there. So, all right. Um, <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen says, when does Signum announce its push for world domination via online learning? Well, you know, for domination, I think we're doing it wrong. I think you're supposed to charge more money if you want to take over the world. Uh, that at least is the sneaking suspicion I've been getting over the last 10 years that something's not adding up when it comes to global dominion. But fortunately, since our goals are uh, much milder than global dominion uh i think we'll be we'll be able to do okay all right uh so i uh entrust this page to you and there's lots of uh, places from here where you can link to uh, uh our donation page there so all right very good um let us jump back into the text then um so we were we mostly finished with the the early documents on aging, where he was thinking through the life cycles of the elves. What we're going to get to tonight is the exhilarating moment when he then applies those principles uh, to the historical chronicles of, um, you know, the early days of the elves, of the time of the trees. So let's... um. I, Oh, see, again, I was supposed to advance my slide and totally forgot. Uh, a couple things that let's I wanted to go over this uh, uh, this chart because it's tolerably confusing. Um, but this seems to be a concept. Um, this seems to be a concept that um, was important uh, to him that he really kind of decided really should uh, really should be a part of the thing. We'll see him using these kinds of calculations later as well. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that we were all clear on this um, on this um, content here. Um, okay, uh, so here's his chart. His equivalent, this is the new and advanced equivalency chart between elf years and mortal years. And again, as we pointed out before, as, you know, as we observed earlier on, I would just emphasize how interesting it is that he's still kind of doing it in this way, right? Notice how he's saying, like, you know, at age 48 or at age 92 or, you know, whatever. Um, and he's, he puts those in quotation marks, right? He puts those in quotation marks because it's not actually their ages, right? Um, he still is attempting to make this comprehensive, to, to show them in parallel, to, to kind of translate, in a sense, the life cycle of the elf into terms that are comprehensible from the perspective of the life cycle of humans, um, showing some ways in which they are, in fact, organically similar, um, but also in some ways not, in some ways kind of imposing upon 
that in order to... And that's why it gets so complicated. Let me explain what I meant. Okay, so let's just kind of look through the chart here. So for chronological purposes and comparison of elves and men, these dates may be exhibited so. An elf child conceived was born nine loar later. Elvish growth age, about nine months. Okay, so in mortal years, that's nine years. Okay, so we got nine months. So notice how he's pulled back here on the... Um, um, this is important because remember that time where he was saying that like elves were pregnant for like 108 years of the sun, right? And he's decided, no, 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 that's not the case. And you'll remember that there was earlier where he was like, it's nine years. And then later on, he's like, no, 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 it's 108 years, right? And so what we can see there is him kind of waffling back and forth on the question of, okay, so is one year of growth for an elf the equivalent of 12 years? of the sun, or is it the equivalent of 144? That's the difference between the 9 and the 108, right? Um, so, um, he's... Where did he come down on that? You know, at, sometimes it was 12 to 1, sometimes it was 144 to 1. What's his final answer? Both! <laughs> Both is the final answer, right? Both is the final answer. Um, um, in their early years of growth... Right, so he's divided the lives of elves into two sectors. Right, there are their growth. There's their time of growth, and then there's their uh, time of of living, of 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 aging. Right, of continuing. So, like the growth process is comparatively rapid. That's twelve to one, but the living process, right, that's where it gets more prolonged, and so there it's one hundred and forty-four to one. So both of them are true. Well, they're not both true. Like, it's not, you can't be pregnant for both nine and 108 years. Um, the nine years is true, but that doesn't mean he's applying the 12 to 1 all the way through. So we see, so far, he's on the 12 to 1, right? Elf child conceived, born nine lower later, after nine mortal years. Great. Okay. The growth age of 12 to 1 in comparison with mortal years was maintained until an elf man reached age 24. 288 years. So that's 24 times 12. Okay, so for the first 288 sun years, or 24 elf years, right, of their li of their lives, they have been... Now, so how many valiant years is that? Valiant years are 144 to 1, right? So in years of the Valar, it's only two years, right? So in, 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 in the years of the trees, an elf goes from birth to maturity, physical maturity, physical and like, you know, emotional maturity or whatever, in two years of the trees, or in what he's calling 24 elf years here, which is 24 times 12, in the growth rate, right? 24 years of growth, of elf growth, which is 288 years of the sun. But girls mature faster, right? In the case of women, it usually ceased at 18, the growth rate ceased at 18, though it was sometimes continued, especially in Amman, to 21, right? So we've got 216 years. That's 18 times 12. Okay, so after 216 years of the sun, a girl child is fully grown and ready for marriage, and after 288 years of the sun, a boy child elf is matured and fully ready. Not only for, you know, marriage and whatever, but also now they're going to hit the 
pause button, not the pause button. They're going to shift into a different gear, the slow gear, right? The aging gear. And from now on, elf years are going to be equal to 144 years. So when you talk about an elf man who is age 48 equivalent, right? That equals 288 loar plus 24 yen, right? So his first 24 years are those 12 years per, quick years, right? The growth years. But his second 24 years are 144 long, years long each, right? So his first 24 years last 288 years of the sun. His second 24 years last 3,456 3, years of the sun. So uh, if you meet an elf who says, I, I just turned 48, that means he's actually lived for 3,744 years of the sun. And then he keeps going, right? Uh, at age 96 and at age 192. So he's just doubling it, right? Doubles 48 and then doubles it again, doubles 96 again, right? And so we see that it get, keeps on the same way. We're just, we, we keep, you know, we've got those first 288 years that he needed to grow to maturity. And then we're adding yen at 144 years per, give, giving us to 10,656 or 24,480. Um, and then he does the same thing with women, right? At age 21. So remember at 18 is when they hit the slowdown button, right? So they've had to their 216 low R plus three yen at 144 years apiece. So at the age 21, it's only been, it's been 648 years. So at age 36, they're 2,808. And at age 72, they're 7,992. And at age 144, they're 18,360. Um, Okay, so there's always going to be kind of differences here, right? Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's because they stop or because they slow down at different ages, right? The exact, the, 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 the precise ages of elf men and elf women are not going to be the same. Now, okay, remember, why is Tolkien doing this? Right? Is this table going to be included in an appendix? Maybe, but clearly he's doing this for himself. Right? He wants to see. He he's doing the math so that he can understand. Um, what is an age ninety six, seventy two, one hundred and forty four, twenty one? Like, how many years are we really talking about here? And we will see very quickly how this becomes relevant because it's going to be relevant to the timeline of um, to the timeline of the 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 children right the timeline of the Silmarillion right so it's good to know that if you've got a, a 96 and, and so and now you might ask why does it matter why does it matter like if an elf is age 72 or age 96 well remember these are relevant ages for the question of having children Right. He, we've, we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks, those passages where he talks about the time of the children and how elves are only in a marrying and child producing frame of mind and attitude of body during this window. Right. And so these ages are relevant to those particular windows. And so therefore, 
this is going to help him. These are the these are the numbers he's going to be using eventually. Well, not too long from now, um, in order to calculate uh, the uh, multiplication of the Quendi, right? How the the population growth of the Quendi, um, and uh, you know who is uh, at what point in the narrative, right? At what point in in history of the Silmarillion um, are which elves still in childbearing years? Right. Um, how can we calculate that? How can we be sort of how can we be sure about that? Um, and so now notice. Um, uh, this stuff matters to him because he's going to be using these numbers in his later charts. Um, and yes, uh, uh, who this 12, we see exactly things like that. Legolas was pretty young during the Lord of the Rings. Definitely, yes. Absolutely. Um, he's, um, he's fully grown, so that's good, right? Um, he's fully grown. But he's not um, a very mature elf, right? Um I mean, how old is Legolas? I don't think we get his birth date exactly. Um, but he's probably what? Is he even 48 yet? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, uh, I think he's under that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, I make the joke about him being fully grown because you'll notice this is one of the reasons I think that Tolkien wants to have it both ways here, right? Remember that question that he tagged into the margin of one of the sections we were reading before, that uh, what about Maeglin question, right? Well, you'll notice we talked about Maeglin as one of the most strained examples, right? If the narrative is going to, if he's not going to just chuck out that entire narrative and chucking out the whole Fall of Gondolin narrative would be, you know, That'd be tough, right? That'd be tough. He really wants to make that one work. But I, I was talking about the severe restrictions we have on the age of Maeglin, right? Because we, you know, he has to be born after a certain time. He has to uh, be fully grown, and uh, uh, you know, uh, in a marital frame of mind, uh, right? By a certain other time, and it's a narrow. It's only a few hundred years. Um, it all has to happen within the space of just a few hundred years. So um, this now fits that constraint. He clearly didn't want to just say, forget the 144 thing. It's just going to be 1 to 12 all the way through. Like, let's, let's make Valian years 1 to 12. He could have just done that, right? That was close to what he'd already done before he said 1 to 10, right? Back in the, the old days when he was, you know, the old quaint days when he was just kind of waving his hands at these numbers without really thinking it through, right? He, like, said, oh, it's about 1 to 10. Um, well, 1 to 12 is very similar, right? I mean, a little bit longer, but it's very similar to that ratio. Um, so the big questions, I mean, again, one of the problems that he has when he looks at his chronology is he's like, okay, on the one hand, these time spans need to be much longer. So... That's why he settled on the 144 to 1. It works much better for the term in terms of like global history, right? But if it takes elves 24 times 12, right? If it takes a boy elf 
from birth to marriageable age. If that takes 3,456 years of the sun, we got problems, right? Myglin is toast at that point, right? If that's the case. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So he solved that problem by having his cake and eating it too. By this idea that um, you can, um, you can, they, by this like gear shifting that the elves do, right? Uh, now, conceivably, he could have made it slightly less confusing by merely having, by merely having, I mean, it's all in multiples of 12, right? Um, it's just that we're saying that one elf year equals 12 and then one elf year equals 12 squared later on, right? Um, so one might, one might say it this way. What is the source of confusion here? Why is this confusing? It's not inconsistent. It's not inconsistent. The only reason it sounds inconsistent is that he's insisting on the parallel to mortals. If you just let that go, like, okay, I mean, forget the 24, 48, 36. Forget that, right? Just do it in 12s. So they're 24 times 12, that's 288 years. Instead of saying they're 48 years old when 3,744 years have passed, don't say that. Just say that they've gone 24 times 12 plus 24 times 12 times 12. Just like if you want to do elf years, you could do, you could always just say an elf year equals 12 years of the sun, right? It's just there, if you did that, their ages would no longer be parallel to human years, to mortal years, to the mortal time frame. So this idea of like when they're, you know, between the ages of 24 and 70 or so, you know, uh, that's when they're breeding, right? That's when they're of meriting, marrying and childbearing age. Well, the only reason that's useful at all is because that helps us to like establish a parallel with our own life cycles, right? Um, so, um, and Michael, as you say, exactly, the parallel with morals breaks down after a hundred anyway, as we discussed. Like it, it's, the parallels are pretty close and then they diverge pretty significantly uh, as we go through. So um, it's interesting to me that he's willing to sacrifice. I mean, this is clumsy thinking about it this way, right? I mean, having to do the math twice, Right. You know, having to convert the units differently, 288 lower plus 72 yen, which is 144 years each equals 10,656. It's, it's fine, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. Right. Um, he could easily just say one elf year equals 12 mortal years. And then, you know, and an elf grows up in 24 years and then they're of marriageable age for a several hundred after that. And, you know, whatever, like that'd be fine. Who cares? <laughs> right. I mean, it would be just be. 288 years and then 288, you know, be 24 years and then 288 more elf years. Now, again, this would not at all, would completely lose the parallel to mortals, but it would be simpler, right? Um, so he seems to be clinging to that, to that parallel, to in that invitation to his reader. And I, I, I mean, maybe it's for himself. Maybe it's for the reader. Maybe it helps him to envision the, you know, the 
the growth and aging cycle of the elves for him to maintain that parallel, even at the expense of more complicated math um, and a more sort of weird, you know, conception of it. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, Bruce, you're right. He says, in addition to the Mygwin problem, aren't Finway and Thingol both from the first generation of Quivian and Elves? That limits how far back the Awakening can be. I think we'll get to that. I think we'll... I haven't gotten to that yet. I, I told you, I've been reading slowly uh, because I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to leap ahead and... I want to focus on the chapters that we're discussing as we're discussing them through. Um, but I'm suspecting, Bruce, that we're going to get to that. Um... So, George, let's see. Is this more a maturity level than actual age? Um, like when we say a woman is more mature than a man her same age? No, he's talking about physical growth. I mean, he is talking about, like, mental and emotional growth as well. Um, but he's not just talking about, like... Um, so, I mean, to some extent, when we say a woman is more mature than a man her same age, um, we're speaking of mental and emotional maturity. Right. Um, in addition to physical maturity or like on top of physical maturity. Um, so to some extent, in that sense, yes, I suppose actually it is pretty much saying the same thing. Um, but he is. But it is again, it's it's about growth. Right. From when they proceed. To, but remember how he was saying they uh, um, they physically grow. They, they grow emotionally and intellectually much faster than they grow physically, actually. Right. So remember, he was describing in some of the older documents, right, these like elves, which might look to us like children of age, you know, five or six or something like that. And yet they're, you know, uh, fluent in multiple languages and, and uh, you know, like, you know, composing uh, 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 sonatas and whatever else they're doing. Right. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's different in that way. But anyway, definitely. Um, uh, definitely growth. Yeah. Michael says it's coming. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it, Michael, there's literally nothing that would surprise me more than him not. I mean, how could he not come back to the Finway and Muriel problem? The Finway and Muriel problem is like Tolkien's favorite problem ever. Right. So there's no way he's not going to be considering that. Absolutely no way. Um, okay. Let's keep going. At this point, the story has not been thought out, and the chronology so far devised is impossible. So this is now chapter six. This is him turning to the now it's time to apply all this growth stuff. Right. Um, and let's and, and look at his dismissiveness of the tale of years. Right. Um, the 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 the. The story has not been thought out. Right. That's Tolkien's commentary on the published Silmarillion. Because the published Silmarillion is drawn all from these texts that he's saying the story has not been thought out. And the chronology so far devised is impossible. Where there is chronology, it doesn't work. Um, and there's nothing that shows more clearly than this, right? There's nothing that shows more clearly than this, the change of mode that Tolkien had in mind, right? Um is he saying he thinks that the Silmarillion sucks now? You know, that he now thinks it sucks? No, he's not saying that. Um, what he's saying is it has not been thought out in this way, right? Um, 
It's just been all this mythological hand waving. Well, that's what he was doing before, right? When he sat, what did he sat down? What did he sit down to do before? And by before, I mean like when he was twenty-one, right? When he's writing the Book of Lost Tales, he sat down to write mythology, right? To do myth and mythic stories, the mythic stories of the elder days. Um, and no. It's not thought out in this way. Most of the questions which he's going to be trying to answer were not even on the table. I mean, there is no way. The question of exactly how many elves awoke at Quivienen and how um, rapidly did they have to procreate and on what schedule in order to achieve a sufficient population by the time... He was not at that's that's that kind of question is completely outside of the world of the story, the kind of story, the genre of story that he was writing, um, uh, the genre of story that he was writing when he was writing those other those older stories. It's even different than the annals. Right. He, he's been writing the annals of Amon and the annals of Beleriand, uh, trying to put the story into slightly more rigorous um, chronological mode, but not not really rigorous. Right. Um, uh, that was a step in the right direction as far as he's now concerned. But yeah, it was sloppy. Right. Sloppy and haphazard. Now it's time to think this through properly. The Tale of Years, T.Y., makes the Quendi... I'm just going to say Tale of Years every time he uses that abbreviation because it's easier. The Tale of Years makes the Quendi awake in Valiant Year 1050. But in Valiant Year 1085, Orame finds already a considerable people. Okay, so in 35 years later, there's a whole bunch of them. Now, the Tale of Years was devised with the scale of, of that one Valiant Year equals about 10 sun years. Loar. So it is plain that the Quendi must have been created from the first in large numbers, since only 350 Loar have passed. Also, since Ingwe, Finwe, and Elwe were first brought to Valinor in Valian year 1102, at that time only 520 Loar had elapsed since the Awakening. No scale of Quendian growth or aging is devised, but in Valinor events seem to show that they lived at about the rate of one Valian year equals one year of Elvish life. This fits events in Valinor, for which it was arranged, but makes all the Eldar far too old in later narrative, unless we suppose that they remained unchanged after maturity for an indefinite time. Okay, so what are the problems that he sees? Do you, you see the two issues that he's having here when he's looking at the Tale of Years? Issue number one, not enough time has passed, right? Um, the only way that the old numbers... Awakening at 1050 and uh, the ambassadors uh, being get, going to Valinor uh, in 1102, only 52 years later. The only way that that's possible is if at the awakening, there were just like scads and scads of elves awakening up by the shores of Quivienen. Which, I'm not going to lie, is what I've always pictured when I've read that. I always assumed that hundreds, perhaps even thousands of elves awoke by the shores of Quivienen. Um, 
but he points this out um, explicitly as the uh, as being made logically necessary, essentially, um, by the by the time frame. The other problem is that life scale thing, right? Um, one year of elvish life, like how elves would measure a year, is about a valiant year, right? So when you look at the events that happen uh, in the tale of years, in the you know in in valiant years, in years of the sun, back in the annals and stuff, and stuff, it fits for if each if an elf a year of elf life basically is about the equivalent of a valiant year. Um, but he says it fits the it fits events in Valinor, but it makes all the Eldar far too old in later narrative. Unless we suppose that they remained unchanged after maturity for an indefinite time. Which is exactly what everybody, including Tolkien, seems in fact to have been supposing all along. Right? Do you get any sense from the published Silmarillion? that elves are growing and going through these life cycles and everything? No. No, we see very little evidence of that in the published text, right? Very little that we could point to. Again, we see Maegwin grow up, right? Um, but, uh, but no, like... That sentence at the end corresponds to a sentence earlier on where he was like, now don't assume that elves just remain unchanged after maturity for an indefinite time. Because that is not how it works, right? And then he explains how it does work with that, remember, at the, the not, for not only the time of the children, but then after the time of the children, when the interests of the Fea begin to dominate and the Fea becomes increasingly dominant over the Hroa. And, uh, and, so, and then you, you've got the, uh, the, the subjugation of the Hroa and then eventually like the absorption of the Hroa into the Fea. Um, so they're in continual change. There's a definite life cycle of the elves. It's long, but it is a definite cycle, right? So you can see how this conceptual change, now that he's kind of worked out what is an elf life actually like, right? What is it? How does, how does, how does elf growth and maturity actually work? Now that he's thought that through, now he's ready to apply it and he, re, he, he acknowledges, he recognizes my old stories did assume essentially, that elves reached maturity and then just stayed that way for a really long time. So, we've got to make it work. We've got to make it work. It's time for that nonsense to end, right? We are going to make a rigorously thought-out and realistic thing. Now, remember, for those of you, if any of you are feeling a sense of... Um, dread, or maybe even revulsion at this idea, right, of doing this to the Silmarillion, um, of thinking it through in this way, keep in mind that it is very likely that this very level of detail is one of the things that you love about the Lord of the Rings, right? And that's what he's doing. What he wants to do is now no longer. Um, I think that this is, seems to me to be the absolute number one way in which the Lord of the Rings has changed Tolkien's life.
No longer is he trying to write a mythology for England because he's no longer writing mythology. Now he wants to write. Remember how he says in his prologue, um, the prologue to the second edition of the Fellowship of the Ring, the one that's included in most modern editions. It's the one that has the business about him cordially disliking allegory and, and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, and where he talks about the history of the writing of the, of the book to some extent. Um, what is his intention? What is the author's intention as he gives it? The intention of the author of this story uh, was to write a really long story, um, you know, that would, uh, you know, that would interest readers and um, perhaps excite them or deeply move them. Um, that's his goal. That's still his intention. That's now his intention towards the Silmarillion. His intention is no longer to write a mythology for England. His, his intention now is to take the success that he had in writing the epic story of the Lord of the Rings, the epic romance of the Lord of the Rings. And now he's going to write the really epic romance of the Elder Days as well, in the same terms and on a similarly, um, uh, a similarly detailed level. Um, now, Joe, I hear you. Um, this would be um, a very different work, right? It would not be the Silmarillion anymore. Not the Silmarillion as we know it, by any means. Absolutely agree with that. Um, but that's no longer what he valued. Now, here's my question, Joe. When push came to shove, what would he have wanted to produce? Would he have ditched it? I'm not sure he would. I'm not sure he would. Uh, and when I say ditched it, I mean the mythic mode. Um, the mythology mode, even. My suspicion, Joe, is had he, I don't know, <clears throat> lived another uh, yen or so, you know, another 144 years of the sun, what he would have done would have been to rework the Silmarillion in all of these detailed modes, to work, at, to know all the answers, right? But what would he have written, though? Would he have stuck with the same mode? Would he have wanted to write it in the same form of narrative with, you know, the same kind of dialogue and landscape description and everything that we get in The Lord of the Rings? Right? Would it really have been told on exactly the same level? Or would he, after working out all this stuff, after building all of this factual foundation of everything and working everything out in detail, would he then have attempted to just rewrite the mythic mode in the context of all these things? I wonder. I kind of suspect it might be the latter. Um, but, Lupita, you're certainly correct. If he had tried to write it all in terms like the Lord, in detail like the Lord of the Rings, then it would have been a very long book indeed, maybe 12 volumes or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. Um, yeah, Sarah, that is an interesting point. Sarah says, it seems that the problem of elves being too old in the narrative really makes their physical lifespan in their prime rather small compared to the total life of Arda. I always assumed they would naturally be more similar. Yes, that is like um, sort of low-key the most 
remarkable decree that he's made. He spent more time talking about maturity, marriage, and uh, childbearing, right? Spent much more time on that. But that's not really what impacts the, the, the whole conceit of elves and their lifespan in Arda. Sarah, exactly what you say. That's the crucial thing. Um, that they fade as quickly as he has them fade. Right? That they're fair to start overtaking their whole... I mean, they're going to go from, you know, they're going to go from baby in arms to invisible to mortals in only, you know, less than 100,000 years. And art is going to go on for quite some time. Right? So the vast majority of an elf, of an elf's, you know, immortal life... Like immortal in quotation marks. Um, of the immortal lives of the elves is going to happen in that Fea-dominated invisible state, right? Um, what we think of as the immortal elves, right? Always young, always beautiful, right? Uh, uh, living out their lives, you know, as if in their physical and mental prime for all of eternity. That's what we think of as immortal life. That's not what the elves have. Um, so I agree. That's a, it's a huge conceptual change, right? A huge conceptual change. Um, and... You know what I wonder, Sarah? I wonder if... Now, this kind of speculation... Let me just preface this by saying this kind of speculation is uh, borderline irresponsible, but I can't help myself, so I'm just going to start it with that caveat. Because I'm trying to answer a why question. Like, why? Why does Tolkien make that change? Like, why... What, what leads to that change? What correlates with that change? What, um, in what way does that alteration to the fundamental narrative of what it means to be an elf, like, how do we understand that, that change in the context of the other stuff that he's written? And Sarah, what I keep going back to is the Athraveth. Um, the conversation between Finrod and Andreth, which you can read in Morgoth's Ring, where they are talking about death. Um, and Finrod makes the point very strongly um, that, you know, she, Andreth, the human, the now later middle-aged or even elderly and Andreth, is um, saying, look, you elves don't get it. Like, you, you say death is the gift of Iluvatar, but that's just because you don't have to worry about it, right? Um, like, it must be nice to be immortal. Um, and Finrod's like, oh, actually, yeah, no, that's not the way it is, right? Yes, we're going to be around for a long time, but no. Um, this is, uh, like, basically that, that assumption. The assumption that to be an elf means to be immortal, which means to be, you know, young, happy, and vigorous for the entire length of the earth of the, of the age of the, of, of the earth or of the solar system, even um, that. And Finrod is saying that's an assumption, right? It's a false assumption based upon your short lifespans. Yes. Our lifespans are longer and things work differently. Right. Um, and also remember that this, the state of things at that point in the narrative, there hadn't been enough time since the awakening for there to be many faded elves. This was still early days in the history of elvendom, right? And Finrod is anticipating a time 
when they're going to be just floating memories, essentially. Right. Um, and so, Sarah, what we see as he's working it out, that becomes the paradigm. Right. Yep. Elves are immortal, but nope, they certainly do not remain unchanged after maturity for an indefinite time. Um, yeah, Lupita, it is almost like a perpetual twilight, a very slow decay. I'm not sure I'd use decay exactly. Um, he's try he seems to me to have tried to resist that idea, right? Don't think of it as their mortal bodies breaking down. They don't age, right? They don't get decrepit. Um, they're not like, uh, what was the name of that Greek? Tithonius, right? The guy who asked for immortality but forgot to ask for perpetual youth, and so he eventually becomes a cricket. Remember that? Remember that myth? Uh, that Greek myth? Um, they're not like Tithonius, right? That's, that's, not, that's not how it works. What happens to their hoar is different from that. Um, um, so it's not about physical decay, um, but it's about... Um, but perpetual twilight? Yeah, Sure. Sure. Yeah, the elves, uh, the elves all kind of living in the gloaming uh, for the last, what, 11 twelfths of their life or whatever, more than that. I mean, it's, um, yeah, yeah, that's what it means to be an elf. It's not, it's not the glorious gig that you might assume as a human, especially if you're a human uh, mortal woman of the first age, for instance. Um, anyway. So that seems to me to be a really crucial concept, but I absolutely agree with you, Sarah. It's a huge, huge change uh, in the way that elves not only are, have been conceived by him, but frankly have been conceived by anybody. Think about the differences here between, like, in the very early days, if you remember, if you were with us for our um, Mythgard Academy discussions on the Book of Lost Tales, for instance... It was clear at that time that he was trying to deal with the late 19th century, early 20th century conception of fairies, right? Small diminutive creatures that hide in flowers and such. Um, but he was trying to relate them to older traditions of fairies, um, especially uh, like medieval traditions of fairies. Now, this is not any of those things, right? His conception of elves has grown and changed until he, he's no longer just trying to connect them. Now, like, um, there aren't any, you know, uh, earthly mythologies that talk about elves quite like this, right? This is a new thing. Um, okay. All right, let's keep going. More on the narrative implications. The actual dates of the tale of years need to be need not to be regarded. Sorry, need not be regarded. Since being on the wrong scale, they will have to be revised. Right? So it's like we don't it's not like we have to deal with those numbers, because they're on the wrong scale anyway. So, you know, whatever. But since a mass creation of the Quendi is poor narrative and mythology, some sort of legend of the arising of the elves and of their increase and in fortunes must be devised. And evidently, a much longer time than 350 Loar must elapse between the awakening, between the awaking and the finding, that is, by Orame, and much longer also than the 480 Loar, valiant year 1085 to 1133, between the finding and the arrival of the Noldor in Valinor. The whole matter of the Great March must be considered. 
But increasing the length of time between the awaking and the finding, which is useful in allowing more time for Melkor to interfere with them, must inevitably lay some blame on the Valar, as is probably just. Okay, so several things here. Um, notice his simple assertion. A mass creation of the Quendi is poor narrative and mythology. Fails on both counts. He's just flat rejecting that idea. It would solve many of the problems, right? Uh, he wouldn't have to change much of the narrative at all if he were just willing to uh, say, oh yeah, like uh, 20,000 elves awoke by Quivianen, right? But he says, no way, man. Um, that's, uh, that is bad mythology, and that's poor narrative. It fails on both counts. I am not sure I understand why. I mean, I believe him. And on this kind of thing, I am absolutely willing to just, like, not, you know, Tolkien is going to know better than I do what is poor narrative and poor mythology, right? Um, we're talking about somebody, right? I mean, he's 68 years old now at this point, right? This guy's been in the business for a while, both the narrative and the mythology business. Uh, so he knows more than I do about this stuff. No question. Um, but, um, uh, but I, so yeah, I don't, my only inkling of it, so to speak, is that it's poor narrative in mythology because it just seems to cut corners. I mean, it's like, it seems to be um, merely designed to save the, um, you know, to, to, to avoid the mathematical problem, right? Um, poor mythology, perhaps, because it makes, um, it makes arrow into like a, I mean, like mass production, right? Um, uh, yeah, Mr. Dennis, it does take away a narrow, memorizable, memorizable set of forefathers. Yes, yes. Um, the idea of, like, and there were originally 24, 12 men and 12 women who awoke by the, sh by the shores of Quivian. And even that's a little bit less powerful than, oh, Genesis 2, right? The formation of Adam and then Eve, right? Um, that's that's good mythology right there, right? That's good narrative and good mythology right there. Um, so yeah, God waves his hands and 20,000 elves wake up. Yeah, lame. Lame mythology, <clears throat> poor narrative. Because, you know, you're not fooling anyone with that. You're just, uh, you're just trying to avoid a problem. But Michael, I agree with you. I think it's really important to see he does still want to write mythology. I think it's an it's an interesting little piece of evidence there. He's still interested as to whether or not it's good mythology. He's not turned his back on mythology entirely, despite the fact that he's thinking in these very non-mythological ways and having to rewrite all of his, like, reconceive his entire mythology because it doesn't fit the facts, right? 
which mythology normally doesn't. But um, but yes, that's still one of his litmus tests, right, as to whether it's an acceptable answer. And in this case, no, no. Okay, so that's one thing. The other thing, his promise to consider the whole matter of the Great March, and boy, is he going to follow through on that, uh, considering the whole matter of the Great March. Um, when he says that, he means it. He's going to map it all out. We're going to get a play-by-play of the Great March, which is pretty awesome. But anyway, okay. Um, but notice the other thing that happens there at the end. The other thing that happens there at the end is his acknowledgement of the larger problems. I think that Tolkien, is, I think it's very interesting the extent to which Tolkien succeeds in doing this. That is, he's getting deep in the weeds, right? I mean, uh, forget individual trees. He's mapping out individual leaves on individual trees. And when you're doing that, it's really easy to lose sight of the forest, right? Really easy. Um, but he's not. He's, a, he, he rec- he's quick to recognize the big picture impact of these changes on his overall narrative, right? Why originally were there only 35 years between the awaking and the finding? Because if it's longer than that, it makes the Valar look bad, right? How long were the elves around there breeding and multiplying while the Valar were clueless over in Valinor? I mean, okay, maybe if it's 35 years... It's not that bad, right? Um, but um, uh, but if, if you've got to expand it, you can't expand it without a cost. And one of the costs is going to be it's going to make the Valar look bad, right? And you are right. Um, yeah, uh, Joe and Karasuma. Um, yes, um, it's... Uh, he's... Sounds almost like he's speaking with the tongue of Melkor here, right? Uh, I think we're going back on that uh, on, on that assessment of critiquing the Valar here. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. So, uh, Jordan, remember he's doing the old math here. Jordan is very sensibly confused. He's like, "How is it thirty three hundred and fifty Loar um, if it's thirty five Valinor?" Remember, he's using the old ten to one ratio. He's talking about the actual dates in the tale of years, which were done on a 10 to one ratio. So he's like, when I said it was 35 years of the years of the, of the trees, what that meant at the time was it was only 350 years of the sun. So that's, he's, he's using the modern word lower, right? His, his, his later word, but he's still dealing with dealing like with the, with the proportions that he had. He's like, look, I can't, there's no way that I can do. And even just applying the new, um, um uh, uh even just applying the new scales isn't going to fix the problem as he's going to point out um but um but yes lupita i agree as is probably just is a really impactful sentence here right um yes uh he's going to go at the risk of speaking with the tongue of melkor He's going to go on and expound on that. The Valar had, of course, no precise knowledge of the time of that awaking. Not if, as seems essential, the vision subsequent to the music stopped short of the actual coming of the children. 
The Ainur were vouchsafed a vision of the children, but not of their exact place in the sequence. Later, Eru deliberately did not inform Manwe of the approach of the time, for he did not intend them to be dominated. That is, did not intend the children, I assume he means, to be dominated. And the function of the Valar was to prepare and govern the place of their habitation. Even so, the Valar should have kept better watch, and not have allowed Melkor peace in which to establish himself. They were, of course, very anxious, but neglected the matter until they feared, ruin, feared to ruin Arda in a war, which would involve the children in misery or destruction. One may object that this could not be, but all the operations of Melkor to those now in time appeared to be in defiance of Eru, and to have power to upset or spoil the design, so that if these were permitted by Eru or could not be hindered, there was no knowing how far they would proceed. Okay, I was about to say, I don't understand that parenthetical statement and I need your help figuring it out. But I think I actually just figured it out while reading it aloud this last time. This is another reason, by the way, um, part of the reason why I read my slides aloud before I talk about them is to, you know, because a lot of people are uh, consuming this in an audio only version. So that's only fair. Uh, but um, uh, but another <laughs> like secret reason why I always read the slides aloud is it helps me to process it. Um, Okay, okay, all right. I think I get I did not get that at all. I read that like four times and didn't get it when I was reading it on the page, but the problem was, I was at that time I was reading it with my eyes. Um, okay. Starting with, one may object that this could not be. What could not be? That a war would involve the children in misery or destruction. Okay, hang on. Let's back up and get. we'll get to the parentheses at the end. First, let's see what his point is here. Um, this paragraph is in part excusing the Valar, right? They couldn't be. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as it sounds that the Valar had no idea, right? That the, the children were alive for potentially, what, thousands of years. Um, sun years, I mean. And the Valar had no idea, Right? Um, that's partially justifiable, but partially not. Some of, some criticism of the Valar, totally fair, right? Um, but, um, uh, but some of it would not be fair. In what sense? Well, they didn't know. They had no warning. I mean, first of all, they're not omniscient, right? They don't know everything that's happening around the world. Um, and Eru didn't, he, Eru on purpose didn't inform them. Eru surprised them with the coming of the children. That was Eru's plan. Eru's plan was for it to be a surprise, right? Um, he didn't, they were given a vision. They saw the children, right? He told them like, hey, the children are coming. And he gave them the vision of the children. Remember, it's this vision of the children, which Aule is um, kind of got dim memories of. And so he doesn't get the dwarves quite right, uh, physically speaking. Uh, but, um, you know, they're kind of a, rough <laughs> sketch of the vision of the children. Um, you know, like you got the number of, uh, of uh, toes and fingers right, but uh, proportions, not exactly uh, as Eru is going to draw them up, turns out. Um, but, um, okay. So, uh, so it's not only understandable that they didn't know right away, it's like Eru's plan that they didn't know right away. 
So if you're going to criticize the Valar, don't criticize them for that. Don't criticize them for not knowing that they were born. I mean, what, what, what do they have, an alarm? Do they have like a detector, right? Like, you know, like a, 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 an elf detective, like elf radar or something? That they're like, no, no. They don't, how are they supposed to know, right? They don't know. Um, but does that mean that the Valar are owed no criticism? No, it is just. It is probably just that the Valar should look a little bad for leaving the elves as long as they do. Why? Um, they did have a job. What was their job? The function of the Valar was to prepare and govern the place of their habitation. To prepare and govern the place of their habitation. Their job was to make the place nice for when the children woke up. They didn't know exactly when that would be true. But their job was to prepare and govern the place of their habitation, which was Middle-earth, the Great Lands. And... They failed in that. They failed in that. Right? They, 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 Melkor set up his headquarters there. And they were like, okay, well, we're safe over here in Valinor. So it's all good. No, it wasn't. I mean, they should not have allowed Melkor peace in which to establish himself. Absolutely not. That was a failure of their job to prepare and govern the place of the habitation of the children. So why do they do this? What's up, Valar? You had one job. Why'd you fail in it? Right? They were, of course, very anxious, but neglected the matter until they feared to ruin Arda in a war which would have involved the children in misery or destruction. So they procrastinated. They were like, we'll get around to fighting off Melkor. And then they were like, uh, well, shoot. Now we can't fight off Melkor without causing a huge devastation. And that could be bad. That could lead to the destruction of the children. And that would be a very serious failure of our job. Right? Now, we're leading to... Um, um, we're leading to, uh, the, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, uh, ever beyond reach, uh, it would have been an even worse failure if they hadn't noticed the children until they started being killed. Right. And the first elf soul shows up in Mandos and, you know, and Namo is like, whoops, <laughs> look, I found the children. Well, a dead one anyway. Yeah. That would have been a, that would, that would have been even worse. Um, um, so yeah, I think, uh, Karasuma Akana, I don't think there's any evidence that there were any elf, elves who were, who, who were killed. Um, I don't think, but okay. Um, all right. So let me go back to one thing before I move on to the parentheses there. The one thing, and this was something, uh, George, because I, I completely agree with you, said this, and I completely agree with you. Um, he did not intend them to be dominated. Right? Um, Eru deliberately did not inform Manwe of the approach of the time, for he did not intend them to be dominated. And the function of the Valar was to prepare and govern the play. 
The Valar's job was to prepare and govern the place of their habitation, and then let them inhabit it, right? He didn't intend them to be dominated. Was the invitation of the elves to Valinor a bad idea? Kind of sounded like it, George, or at least it's dangerous, right? Um, now, are the Valar guilty of dominating the children? I don't think so, right? I think if you said the Valar were guilty of dominating them, you might be speaking with the tongue of Melkor, but um, but it's obviously a tricky question, right? And um, he does, I agree, uh, seem to me to imply that how it was supposed to work was that they, the Valar, were supposed to spruce up the great lands and let the elves live there. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway, um, so, <clears throat> parentheses. He starts with, one may object that this could not be. What could not be? What's the problem that he's objecting to and then trying to explain away or trying to contextualize for us? And the answer is that it would involve the children in misery or destruction. Excuse me. Okay. Now, this was my problem, is I didn't see that link until now. <clears throat> What's the problem? I mean, isn't that logical? Like, we don't want to carpet bomb Middle-earth because we might kill off the children? I mean, that sounds like a reasonable question. Right. I mean, given the number of times in which an all out war between, you know, the West and <clears throat> Morgoth <coughs> ends in like the sinking of a continent. It seems a perfectly realistic fear that there might be a little too much collateral damage for that kind of war. They could, in their attempts to preserve the children, exterminate the children accidentally. And wouldn't there be egg on their faces then if that happened, right? I mean, that seems like a perfectly logical thing to do. But there is a problem. When he says one may object that this could not be, why would one object that this could not be? It could not be that the children would be involved in misery or destruction. The answer is, I believe, an answer of faith. If the Valar opposed Melkor, they would be doing their job. They would be doing what Eru set them to do. And Eru's plan is for the children to come. And so, by doing their job opposing Melkor, they could not thwart Eru's plans. Because Eru's got it taken care of, okay? Um, the objection is based on trusting providence. That they, in their anxiety and in their neglect, have the, that the Valar themselves, the implication here, is that the Valar themselves have perhaps failed in faith here. They didn't trust Iluvatar. They didn't trust that Iluvatar knew what he was doing. That Iluvatar would manage things a little better than that, thank you very much. Um, that seems to be the, the objection. And if we started on that ground, then the rest of the parentheses make sense. All the operations of Melkor 
to those now in time appeared to be in defiance of Eru. So thou are looking at this. They're assessing the situation. And they're like, okay, Melkor is, in is acting in defiance of Eru. That's obvious, right? And Melkor appears to have the power to upset or spoil his design. So we can't just trust Providence that things, everything's going to work out the way that Iluvatar had originally intended because that's right out the window at this point, right? Because Melkor has been busily messing up what Iluvatar intended originally, right? So who knows where things now stand, right? So if these, that is, the actions of Melkor, the operations of Melkor, if the operations of Melkor are permitted by Eru or could not be hindered, that is a serious thing to think. Remember, if you remember well, in the Athrobeth, there's that moment when uh, Finrod comes like this close to telling Andreth to like wash out her mouth with soap, right? When he's like, let's not even go there. Like, you should not even say that, right? And what it is that she says is something like that. Like, is it that, you know, the one has no power? To, like, it, his will has been thwarted by Melkor? Right, because if uh, his plan was for humans to be immortal like the elves, and then like Melkor came and screwed it up, right, and now he's cursed us, and apparently God can't do anything about it, right, and uh, uh, Finrod is like, let us think about that a different way, right? He he strongly objects to that line of thinking, but that's exactly the kind of line of thinking because from within time, and the Valar are now in time. Remember. Right. From the temporal perspective, it looks that way. It looks like Melkor is getting away with all this crap. Right. He's doing all these things. He's changing all this stuff. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Right. What is Iluvatar doing? Iluvatar is letting him run rampant over this whole creation. Look at how all of Arda has been marred like this. The whole thing is marred down to its roots. Right. So either Eru is letting him do that, in which case, who knows what Eru's plan is, right? Or what he might not let him do. Maybe he would, right? If he's letting him do all this to everything else, maybe he would, like, let all of the children die as collateral damage of the war with Melkor so that we fight off Melkor and in the end, oh, no children, whole plan for creation thwarted, right? I mean... Or even there's that like parenthetical, parenthetical possibility, right? That almost blasphemous consideration. Maybe Eru can't help it. Maybe Melkor is like, not like winning, winning, but like scoring points against, you know, in defiance of Eru. There was no knowing how far they would proceed. They the operations of Melkor. There's no knowing how far the operations of Melkor would proceed if these are permitted by Eru. So, yeah, all is on the hazard. So what do we see? Yeah, Stephen, I agree. The Valar clearly needed to read Boethius. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, here is the fascinating conclusion there that I think we can draw from this parenthetical passage. It suggests an answer to an implicit question from earlier, 
from just earlier up the paragraph. Why? Why doesn't Iluvatar just tell them? Why is Iluvatar so cagey with the vision? I mean, he gives them a vouchsafed vision of the children, but not of their exact place. And he didn't tell them. Like, he didn't. I mean, he could have just at least gave them a heads up, even if he didn't tell them in advance for some reason in the inscrutable will of Iluvatar. At least he could have, you know, reached out to Manway, right? Been like, hey, dude, um, happy elf day, right? But no, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Why not? Why does he deliberately leave the Valar in the dark about this? And the answer, based on that parenthetical statement, would appear to be because it's important for the Valar themselves to have faith and to hold to faith. It's not a given. It is not a given that the Valar are going to be able to hold to faith. They know they were there at the music. They heard the speech. I see people quoting the speech about um, uh, uh, about um, uh, you know, none shall alter the music in my despite and all that, right? They heard him tell Melkor about that. But do they believe it? Now that they're in it? Now that they're down? Now that they're inside time? And they see these things unfolding around them? Can they hold to that belief? Right? Can they maintain their Estelle in the face of the unfolding of the world in the context of Melkor's defiance of Eru? Can they live, can they be bound to Arda Mard and hold on to their Estelle, their hope in that what should be shall be, that the will of Iluvatar will still be done? And that's not a given. And of course, we should know. We should have known that that's not a given. As we've seen plenty of examples, Melkor himself, but you could say, well, Melkor's a bad example because he fell outside of time, right? This is, he, these, are one, these, are, these are the good guys, right? And he suggests, Tolkien suggests here, yeah, they can fall. A, a lack of faith, at least a lapse of faith is possible. And perhaps full-blown apostasy. Well, of course it's possible, right? We see it happen. We see it happen in a big picture with Sauron, right? That's what happened to Sauron. Sauron is one of them, right? Uh, we see it happen even more dramatically in a smaller scale with Saruman. Think about the parallel there. Saruman becoming incarnate in a body, like the Valar entering into time. Remember how we talked last time about how that entering into time is like incarnation, right? The entire physical matter of Arda is like their bodies and they are its soul, right? Um, it is like an incarnation, explicitly. And when Saruman becomes incarnate, he leaves and heads off with, like, the best of intentions, right? Um, but uh, doesn't follow through on those, right? Things start to look different to him. Um, and he falls to temptation. He loses his Estelle. He um, changes. 
Um, and clearly, <clears throat> that's a thing that can happen. It happened to Sauron. It happened to Saruman. Um, it could happen to others. And so it absolutely does suggest, I think, the inescapable conclusion of this paragraph is that the Valar themselves, not to mention the Ainur, but the Valar themselves have free will. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I cannot possibly see... Um, I cannot possibly see how you one could maintain otherwise, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Stephen, absolutely. Was Aule's impatience a lack of faith in a sense? Definitely, definitely, yes. Aule has a lapse? D- absolutely, yes. Um, I do think that that is, it's a, and it's a particularly dangerous kind of lapse that Aule has, right? Um, not just a lapse into despair or one hope, uh, to use the wonderful Middle English word. Um, but taking matters into his own hands, right? I'm going to make things turn out the way that I want them. Um, I'm going to take it on myself to bring about the fulfillment of this vision, even though I know that's not how it's supposed to go. But because how I know it's supposed to go is not how I want it to go, like I'm sick of waiting around, Right? I know I'm supposed to wait around, and waiting around sucks, so I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. That, so that is, it is a lack of faith, right? It is a, a failure of Estelle. Um, but it is, um, it's a little more dangerous than that, but it's only a lapse. Um, he, uh, uh, he repents, so it's fine. But again, yeah, uh, it, it's, uh, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that the Valar have free will and that at times they are shaky in their faith, in their Estelle. And that's a fascinating thing. Um, And I would add, by the way, another way we see. The uh, conception, the traditional Christian conception, well, let me say, since we're talking about uh, Tolkien, the traditional Catholic conception of angels, um, and I'm using that term very vaguely, not specifically to the subcategory of the angelic hierarchy labeled angels, but to the entire angelic hierarchy, right? Referring to that category of spiritual beings. Traditional Catholic teaching uh, on angelology, whole subset of theology, um, was relatively simple in this regard. Um, there were, of course, like there's obviously some um, upward or downward mobility, right? Because the demons fell, Satan and his angels fell. Um, but traditional Catholic theology is relatively firm. I mean, though I subject myself to correction because this is, uh, you know, Catholic angelology isn't an area of expertise of mine, but I, I am enough of a medievalist to have read some of this stuff. Um, and um, my memory of this is that they, they're pretty clear that like there, there's no more nobi- mobility. Like demons can't repent. Um, they just like, they just won't like that's not happening. And the angel, no more angels are falling at this point. So like the, um, 
the current angel demon distribution is a, is a, is a, is a steady state uh, as far as me- medieval angelology was concerned. Um, so this concept of what it is for the Valar to be in time and how they are in this way subject to these kinds of, like by being in time, by being incarnated in the sense in which they were not into individual bodies, but into the world itself, they have become subject to the vicissitudes of will, temptation, hope, despair, um, that other beings that, you know, uh, that the, um, uh, what is it? Hrombari, uh, the incarnated races also face. Um, yes, yes. Um, Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of amazing. Like I said, I didn't even like before I clicked on this slide, I hadn't really seen that, but it suddenly occurred to me what the objection exactly was. And I think I'm right about that. I think, I think I'm understanding that passage correctly now. Um, and it's pretty mind blowing. Okay. Anyway, now, we talked a little bit about this last time. Um, this is not going to solve anything, I think, but it's a little bit, it's, it's interesting. But Melkor had, of course, since he largely controlled Middle-earth, sorry, Melkor had, of course, found them, right? He finds them before the Valar do. Uh, but Melkor had, of course, since he largely controlled Middle-earth, and he and had hosts of spies and servants, soon discovered the Quendi. And he had time to frighten them, fill their minds with dark imaginings and fears, beside, probably, capturing some of them, and even corrupting or seducing some. Hence the taint in some degree of the shadow, which lay even upon the Eldar. First of all, please notice what he is not saying here. Don't be hasty in your interpretation of this paragraph. Don't be hasty. What um, can can somebody please make clear what he has not said in this passage? What has he not said about the uh, the elves, the captured elves? He says he probably captured some of them. Yes, there's a there's a word that he's not orcs is the word he has not used. Yes, he is not he has now is he ruling out the possibility that the origin of orcs might come from here? No, no, no. He's not said he's not said anything either way about it. That's what I want to emphasize, right? Um but it would be easy for people especially if you're just familiar with the published Silmarillion which states unequivocally that the origin of orcs lies in elves who are captured um, uh, by Melkor from Quivienen and then taken in by slow arts of corruption, uh, twisted. Right? It says that unequivocally in the Silmarillion. But remember, that was Christopher. That was Christopher choosing one passage out of very many, and we dealt with this for like a month and a half uh, at the end of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. Tolkien had nothing like made up his mind that that was the case, and indeed that theory. Um, uh, that theory is uh, an earlier theory. The later theories uh, were mostly about that they came from men, not from elves. But anyway, um, so I just wanted to make sure nobody reads this and is picturing orcs in their heads. Because although 
this would be consistent with that story of Orc Origin. It absolutely does not mandate that story of Orc Origin. And this is written after those passages we were discussing in Morgoth's Ring, I'm pretty sure. Um, so he's already been doing his, oh, shoot, where do orcs come from? Um, contemplations, Tolkien has, right? So um, that is to say, if he'd made up his mind, for sure, he'd have said it here. But he doesn't say it here. And I think that's revealing. So, okay. Um, I... <laughs> okay. Uh, I saw, was Tarlonio, were you making? Yeah. Um, uh, we're raising a digital eyebrow there at the word seducing. Um, I do not believe that that means a sexual seduction. I don't think we're supposed to imagine, um, you know, uh, Melkor uh, dressing up in something slinky and making his way to Quivian. And that is not, I believe, what is happening there. Um, uh, corrupting or seducing some, the, the, the sense of seducing, I would... Um, um, uh, you know, I feel like Prince Humperdinck. Uh, I would stake my life on it. Um, I, what he means by seducing there is merely, yes, seducing to his cause, convincing not all, So he doesn't just capture them. He doesn't just, um, like, beat them up. He doesn't just torture them. He doesn't just break them mentally or emotionally. He, some of them he actually convinces to come to his side to be his servants, to worship him. Um, that is, um, I, I'm quite sure what he means by seducing. But note that is all with it probably. Beside probably capturing some and even corrupting or seducing some. Probably. Probably happened. Okay. Um, but um, that's... Um, yeah, come to the dark side, Luke. Exactly, uh, Lupita. The um, the speeches of the Emperor in The Return of the Jedi, um, you know, from his throne there, uh, 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 is he's attempting to seduce Luke. Not sexually, but to the dark side of the Force. That's ex exactly the kind of seducing that we're talking about there. Um, okay. Um, now, that last clause. Hence, the taint in some degree of the shadow which lay even upon the Eldar. Um, I don't know what that means. This is connected to what we were discussing last time when we talked about, like, how the elves are not fallen and what it means to be fallen and not fallen. And I was talking about, you know, sort of Christian concepts of this and everything. Um... In what sense are the elves fallen? This is, on the one hand, this passage is very directly related to that question. On the other hand, I don't know what it means. So it doesn't actually help me very much. Um, okay. There is a shadow that lies upon the elves. So they are... Fallen in a sense. But in what sense? Um, and also, how does it work?
I think this, and uh, by the way, did you notice this whole thing is one sentence? Which, like, arguably could have been structured a little more clearly. But again, he's hard to blame the guy. He's just, like, writing out notes, right? Um, I kind of write like this, too, when I'm brainstorming. Um, but if we kind of make parenthetical the business about capturing them, right? So let's skip the bit about what might have happened to the captured elves and then go back a little bit. So he soon discovered the Quendi. Morgoth soon discovered the Quendi. And he had time to frighten them, fill their minds with dark imagining and fears, and, and fill their minds with dark imaginings and fears, hence the taint in some degree of the shadow. That seems to me the context, because those who are captured and taken away, they're, they're, they're separate now, right? Whatever happens to them, and we don't know what it is, but it doesn't sound good, right? Whether it's orcdom or something else, it's not good, right? Um, but anyway, whatever does happen to them is not going to affect everybody else. I mean, okay, like, you know, uh, you know, Uncle Rufus was captured and I'm awful sad about that is going to affect them, but... But it's not going to lay the shadow upon them, right? What, how, what the laying of the shadow upon them, the taint, a strong word, taint, right? The taint that comes upon them comes from frightening them and filling their minds with dark imaginings and fears, I think. Because all of them were subject to that, right? Only a small subset were captured, but all of them were frightened and their minds were filled with dark imaginings and fears. And that is what leads to the taint, and again, if we think about it, this is not so very far away from um, this is not so far away from what we see, what we were just looking at with the Valar, right? If the elves live lives of contented Estel, if they are able to rest peacefully in confidence and trust in Eru then guess what? They're not going to sin. Because this is what happens when you are resting completely in trust and confidence, right? You're not going to rebel against Eru. You're not going to think you know better than Eru, right? You're going you're gonna, to... It's, it's any of that sort of thing, right? Any sinning, uh, any transgression, any defiance of Eru, like Melkor, um, is going to be founded in a lack of esto, a lack of hope. Right, a lack of trust for Eru. It's kind of what it boils down to. Um, and but that's been shaken by fear, by dark imaginings and fears. Right? Uh, are we safe? Can we trust Eru? What about the Black Hunter? Right? What about you know, um, what about Uncle Rufus? Um, these dark imaginings and fears shake their framework, their initial contented relationship with Eru, which they seem to have had a direct relationship with Eru. Um, there are some other passages that suggest that. Um, but that's been shaken now. They haven't rebelled. They've not had a Genesis 3 situation yet. Right? They've not eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or anything similar so far. Right? Um, but their framework has been shaken. 
And now they have all these dark imaginings and fears, which are going to lead them, potentially, if they rest in those instead of in... Um, if they rest in those instead of in in uh, their you know confidence and trust in Eru, um, there's going to be a taint. There's going to be a shadow that lies upon them. That's the best way I can understand what he means by the shadow here. And again, as I emphasized last time, it doesn't mean the same thing as Adam and Eve's fall. The consequences of it aren't exactly the same as Adam and Eve's fall because the act isn't the same as Adam and Eve's fall. Um, but it's a change. They have free will, and free will has the potential um, to turn away and to rebel and to elevate the self. Okay, I'm trying to convince myself I have time for another slide. Yeah, yeah. This is long, but it's... I don't have that much to say about it. This kind of sets up stuff that we'll then come back to next time. With regard to men, see under Sauron, arising and fall of men. Wait, what? <laughs> okay, so he's seriously contemplating, delegating the fall of man to Sauron. So the serpent in the Garden of Eden... Serpent not appearing in this film, right? He said he's not going to tell the story of the fall of man in the Silmarillion. He still holds to that. But it's... There was a snake involved. Um, the, uh... The snake's not going to be Melkor. It's going to be Sauron. Wild. What? That's a huge deal. Huge deal. That's a major promotion for Sauron. That's like the biggest promotion Sauron has ever gotten. Ever. Ever. Um, Sauron's gotten a whole bunch of promotions over his career, right? He kind of started off as like the big bad of Numenor, and then he kind of expanded and took over a bunch of other properties. Um, um, kind of like Disney buying up intellectual properties, <laughs> right? Uh, so like uh, um, when... Tavildo the cat, uh, excuse me, I mean Thu the necromancer, became Sauron, right? That was like when Disney uh, bought the Star Wars franchise. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. Anyway, um, so Sauron has like, uh, you know, many other evil characters have all been consolidated into Sauron over, over Tolkien's career. But this, this is the biggest promotion um, that uh, Sauron has ever had. And it's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Um, uh, but anyway, okay. All right. Um, the arising and fall that took place during the captivity of Melkor. Sorry, the, rising and, uh, the arising and fall took place during the captivity of Melkor and was achieved not by Melkor in person, but by Sauron. So again, notice he, he's just thinking it through. Based on what he said, if the... Because remember, originally the humans arose at the rising of the sun which is late, it's after the, the darkening of Valinor, right? That's when men awake for the first time, when the sun rises for the first time. Now, sun and moon are going to be there from the beginning in the new system. So forget about the rising of the sun. But still, you know, so, but having forgotten about the rising of the sun, he's still wanting to keep it in the same ballpark, right? 
So his his initial assumption here is men are going to awaken about this, you know, the time of the, you know, of the rebellion, right? Of Melkor, you know, of the like the darkening of Valinor and such, which means, or like a little bit earlier, maybe during the captivity of Melkor. But anyway, Melkor's in Valinor at the time, so obviously he can't be there, right? So it's achieved not by Melkor in person, but by Sauron. It occurred about 100 valiant years after the awakening of the Quendi, so about 14,400 Loar later. In that case, if men arose in valiant year 1100, it would explain the neglect of the Valar. Why didn't the Valar go help the men? Since they had now done their duty and removed Melkor. The Valar didn't help men because they were doing it right the second time. They were like, well, we already tidied up the area. Mostly. Right? Kind of. At least we took Melkor into captivity. So y'all should be fine, humans. Right? Figure it out over there. If the end of Valiant Reckoning with the death of the trees occurred in Valiant year 1495, so that's the year of the darkening, as in the Tale of Years, and so far assumed, by 310 in Beleriand, that is three, year 310 of the sun, right? So 300 years of the sun after the darkening Valinor. In Beleriand, men would have existed 395 Valiant years plus 310 lower. So again, if, they, if, they, if the men awoke in Valiant year 1100 during the captivity, Sauron tempting them, right? Um, then it would have been 395 Valiant years, plus 310 years of the sun. So a total of 57,190 years, which is adequate, if not scientifically long enough. That is, it doesn't agree with what science has said about when human, how long ago from now humans arose, but close enough. At least it's in the ballpark. Unlike what is written in the Tale of Years, he goes on to explain. The Tale of Years here is quite impossible. It makes men first awake with the first rising of the sun, which is valiant year 1500, after which dates are given in Loar. But the first men appear in Beleriand, already partly civilized, deeply sundered in appearance and language, and leaving a long history behind them, and many other varieties of unrepentant men in the East, in in sun year 310. All that in 310 years. So from 310 years, from when Adam and Eve wake up in the Garden of Eden, to the state that we get in the published Silmarillion, with the different kingdoms, the different kindreds of men who are sundered from each other in speech and in physical time, and they've left way off in the East, other tribes and whatever. It's like, yeah, that could not happen in 310 years. This is one of the major timeline problems that he was seeing earlier on. Um, we saw him wrestling with this in the annals, where he was like trying to stretch it out. And, he, you know, we, we talked about this in the first half of Morgoth's Ring. And he was like, doesn't really work. Doesn't really work. Um, so by pushing it back to Valiant year 1100, he's created a little elbow room. 57,000 years. Now that is a respectable amount of time to go from the Garden of Eden to Beor and Haleth and Hador, right? Okay, okay. So again, it's not, um, it's not, again, it's still short of what science tells us, you know, uh, since humans have been around, but he's not going to split hairs. He's not going to try to, you know, agree with that exactly. And I think he's very wise to do that. Um, 
But okay. Okay. Um, yeah. But oh, Lupita, you're sure right that this promotion of Sauron changes a lot of the context and implications in The Lord of the Rings and what was at stake. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. If, uh, if the overthrow of Sauron at the end of the Third Age is like um, final retribution for the fall of man? <laughs> Huge deal, right? Really big deal. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. And George, you're right. In Gilfanon's tale, back in the Book of Lost Tales, we saw uh, Thu or Tu uh, who has a go at the humans and then the story breaks off. So yeah, that concept, that concept was there. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, okay. All right. Well, I am going to stop there. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, keep going one more slide like I'm playing some kind of uh, insidious term based video game uh, and end up keeping us all until four o'clock in the morning. So um, let's stop there. Um, next, we will look at uh, more details of how this is going to be working out. You know, now the, uh, the, the hardcore application of all that growth and aging stuff to uh, the new timelines, right? And really thinking through what are these timelines like and how is this going to operate? Um, so, we will do that next time. But, but, uh, quick reminder. Well, I say reminder. I've never actually said this before, though you will have probably received a confusing email notification. Um, I'm going to have to, I'm not going to be able to do class next week. So next Wednesday, I'm not going to be available. So we won't meet next Wednesday, the 20th, but we will meet again on the 27th. Okay. Uh, so we're going to skip next week and we'll come back and we'll do session five on the 27th. Uh, so you've got some time to work through uh, work through the math and see if you agree with Chad uh, that Tolkien has made a mistake in his calculation of uh, Elvish generations. Um, so um, let's read through chapter eight. I said eight. No, I said nine last. Let's stick with nine. We'll read through chapter nine, and if we get that far, it'll be uh, surprising. Uh, but we'll 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 stick with chapter nine. Um, all right. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. Don't forget this coming Saturday, our webathon. Uh, come to enjoy some of our space capsules and, and learn some fun things. Uh, and join me at 1 p.m. to learn all about our new space program, how it's going to work and what's going to happen. It's going to be pretty cool. So um, thanks very much, everybody. And I will talk to you guys later. Bye now.